If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. If I say the word gothic, the first thing that probably springs to mind is Count Dracula. Or maybe a ghost, or a werewolf, or something lurking in the dark corners of a spooky castle decorated with cobwebs, skulls and blood-red curtains. But since its emergence, the fantastical creations of the Gothic imagination have been used to explore much more real societal fears. Roger Luckhurst is the author of an illustrated history of the Gothic, and I spoke to him to find out more. Your new illustrated history of the Gothic covers a huge range of material. So we have everything from architecture, we have novels, hammer horror, anime. And one thing that you say in the introduction is that it it used to be easy to define the Gothic, which infers to me it's not that easy to define anymore. How would you define the Gothic? It's always a really difficult question, and um, you know there are there are whole academic careers devoted to um, arguing this point, as you can imagine. Uh, I tend to think of it as it's an imagination of of a pre 
uh, modern world. So we think of the Gothic as medieval architecture and the medieval kind of worldview. Uh, the world is full of demons, full of supernatural kind of things. Um, we are menaced by uh, naughty nuns and evil monks. Uh, and there's always a gibbous moon and it's always, you know, um, pointed architecture uh, and so on. And that really is a projection backwards from the early 19th century. Uh, there's a sense in which uh, people are trying to marshal and understand the, the what we would call the pre-modern world. Uh, and they start to call all of that Gothic. And if you're an architect, this is a really great thing because it means that you can embed architecture in a really long history uh, and it becomes a very positive national architecture in England. So that's why our Houses of Parliament were rebuilt in Gothic form is because, you know, here, here is the long tradition, the mother of all parliaments. This is where democracy uh, was born and it's centuries old. Complete invention. But nevertheless, you know, that's that's helpful. But if you're a writer, the Gothic is full of these really quite frightening pre-modern worlds. You know, so the supernatural, demons can appear. Uh, we think we're over this. We think we're rational. We think we're modern and enlightened. But actually the Gothic in writing form becomes the place where all of our nightmares go. So it's interesting because we're talking about connected but often slightly different phenomenon here so a lot of people I think would think of the gothic purely as vampires and werewolves spooky things that go bump in the night but it's not always as simple as gothic equals scary is it yeah that's right the gothic is something that I always say is like a dream it's a, it has a dream logic which is that um, things can turn into their opposites at a moment's notice or you, know, you can be in one room and you open into another impossible space but because you're in a dream it sort of makes sense and that's the same with the meaning of the gothic actually as soon as you fix one down it begins to flip over and and, and escape from you and given that the gothic is is all about transgression or, or breaking beyond boundaries. Uh, it's appropriate, I suppose, that we can never quite define it because it's always breaking out. It's always going somewhere else. And hopefully we'll talk about some of the ways in which it's it's changed and evolved and mutated over time um, later in the conversation. So you mentioned the 19th century earlier, uh, which I think is often hailed as, as a golden age of Gothic. Is that fair? And is that when we first see this trend emerge? <sighs> The, the Gothic revival in architecture is is very much from the 1720s onwards, actually, so a little bit earlier. The first Gothic novel is thought to be, uh, although there's often arguments about this, but thought to be Horace Walpole's The Castle of Otranto, which is 1764. And there was a huge boom in uh, Gothic, or what they were called terror novels, in the 1790s. So people might have heard of Anne Radcliffe, who really was the absolute superstar of her period, um, like J.K. Rowling, that kind of important. Uh, and, and you've got this huge burst of, of Gothic novels in the 1790s. And then perhaps the other really big famous text is uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is 1818. Uh, and then there's often an argument that the Gothic kind of goes away or disperses into other forms. So it kind of enters into a bit of Dickens here and there, a bit of Wilkie Collins. And then it really comes storming back in the late 19th 
19th century with Jekyll and Hyde or Dracula or uh, the island of Dr. Moreau, all of these sort of monstrous modern horrors that emerge at the end of the 19th century. So it, it is, it's the golden age of ghost stories, definitely, the golden age of um, the emergence of these really modern myths like the vampire, vampires as, as this kind of effete aristocrat appears in 1819, clearly modelled on Lord Byron. Uh, and then it kind of recurs again with um, Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1897. So you can see that it's kind of beginning and end of the 19th century are really important. And then slap bang in the middle uh, of the 19th century is John Ruskin, uh, who wrote a very famous book called The Stones of Venice, which argued that Gothic is the perfect form of architecture. It's organic, it's natural, it, it articulates faith. Uh, so for him, having lots of crenellations and knobbly bits and finials and all that sort of stuff uh, was for him absolutely quintessential to the Gothic architecture revival, which is why we tend to think of all of those um, houses that are, uh, have pointed arches and things in, in England, certainly, but across the world, actually. Carpenter Gothic in America, uh, you get Gothic churches in India and Australia. So really, that's the point where it goes global. And do we have any sense of why Gothic captured everybody's imagination at these certain times in the 19th century? What other intellectual movements was it was it tapping into? That's right. I mean, it's a really, really good question. And in a way, it's uh, what, what we're always trying to trying to wonder. Why the 1790s, say, is the first boom? Uh, well, the argument is that, you know, in, in England, uh, the, here is a Protestant country uh, that's just got itself back together after a period of revolution. And then right across uh, the channel is the French Revolution, which is descending into the terror and lots of people being guillotined and, and you know, this, this kind of monstrous overthrow of aristocracy. Uh, really, really unnerve people. So you can see that there's a very kind of dri politically driven idea behind the Gothic. All of that stuff that's happening on the continent, uh, all of these nasty monks and uh, priests um, are um, basically, you know, tyranny. Tyranny might be returning. So you get that very strongly in the um, 1790s. And so again, in the 1890s, lots of different contexts there, but, you know, immigration into England, but also into America too, beginning to cause anxieties about the purity of the nation. So you have someone like Count Dracula arriving from the very edge of Christian Europe, buying a house that's nearest as possible to Buckingham Palace, you know, right in the centre of London, to for this kind of sleeping monster to kind of awake and contaminate us all. So you can see there's lots of uh, potential ways of reading different things at different times. There's a huge boom in the 1970s in England and America. There's a huge boom right now, arguably, and that might be worth talking about too. Let's talk then a bit about Gothic's global spread. So in the book, you, you describe Gothic's global spread as uncontainable as a zombie virus, which I thought was a, a nice way of putting it. Why do you think it has proven so popular? Well, I think it's a modern uh, mythology. So it's like a toolkit um, which which provides you with a set of images and a set of narratives, which means that you can adapt them in incredibly um, uh, flexible ways. So that um, in England, say, the vampire kind of emerges as this figure of perhaps foreign contamination. Um, but elsewhere, you know, the vampire figure, this thing returning from, from the dead, can lock into local narratives of superstition. So you get vampires 
vampire stories everywhere, in Thailand, uh, in Korea, in Japan, in Australia, all the way around the world. And we all have, different cultures have this kind of need for these sorts of transgressive figures, somewhere hovering between life and death which allow people to kind of work through, in some ways, what it means to be human. What are the limits of of this? And if you go through a revolution, say, in biology, which is what we're doing at the moment, you know, what are the limits of genetic manipulation? What are the the anxieties around that? Then suddenly the Gothic can provide you with extraordinary kind of set of of devices to explore that idea. So that's why I think it's like a modern mythology, lots of bits and pieces that you can pick and choose from and and turn into different hybrids across the world. As you say, I think that the vampire is quite a good way of illustrating that. And I wonder if you could just give us some examples of uh, vampires from across the globe and how that figure has been used to explore different anxieties or different themes in different places. Yeah, I mean, the vampire is a really interesting case because it's it's a word that emerges from the Balkans in, and, and it r- arrives in the English language. We can track this very precisely in the 1730s. And that was from reports which were about um, strange goings on in, in, in very rural parts of, uh, of Romania and, and Turkey and places like this. There's this odd superstition of the peasants who are not you know educated, who believe that one of their neighbours is coming back from the dead and killing off their cattle or, or or preying on people in the town. And so it was seen as, uh, as a form of, you know, what, what a ridiculous bunch of uh, peasants they are. But then it travels rather like, you know, Count Dracula himself travels from the edges of Europe into the centre. So you get these stories happening from the early 19th century of vampires kind of arriving uh, and and being these contaminating figures. Um, But then you also see that idea, there are various forms of of, uh, this undead creature in lots of different cultures. So you get this in in, uh, even all the way back to um, Viking mythology and, uh, and so on. You see this kind of undead creature happening happening in, in, in Siberia or in, or in Africa and so on. Uh, and it's nearly always a kind of way of dealing with um, the foreigner, the anxious the anxieties about foreigners who are kind of coming in, uh, taking our jobs, taking our women, uh, those, sorts of, uh, those sorts of ideas. Um, and then recently, I think, you're able to think through uh, things about um, diseases of the blood. So va- lots of vampire stories about AIDS in the 1980s when it was this um, terrifying disease that was incurable. Uh, and right now, of course, um, our zombies and vampires um, feel like uh, they prepared us actually for COVID, you know, this this idea of the pandemic. Um, zombieism is a form of pandemic in many 21st century versions of it, and so is the vampire. So you can see how it kind of changes and shifts across time. And it's, again, an incredibly malleable device uh, for people to be able to um, articulate anxiety, really, and manage it. That was actually going to be one of my next questions uh, about how Gothic is used to explore anxieties of the age. You gave some great examples there, but I wonder if you could give us some some more, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so I mean, I, I I think, for example, very recently, you know, there's the, the there has been a lot of uh, say horror films which which do directly address um, key anxieties of our time. So. 
you know, one of um, the first uh, horror films to emerge around the time of the financial crash in 2008 uh, was was this brilliant B-movie called Drag Me to Hell, which starts with someone uh, refusing um, to to extend a mortgage and she is cursed. And then everything kind of erupts from, from that point of view. She gets completely kind of harassed, this um, poor old bank person. And in a way, it's just a hugely exaggerated version of, of economic insecurity. Uh, and you can look at films like uh, Get Out, which people might have, have seen, you know, Jordan Peele's brilliant little film, which is emerging about the same time as Black Lives Matter, uh, exploring the idea that actually an incredibly wealthy white population might literally be preying on the bodies of, of, of black people. So there is a kind of explicit use of, of those um, contexts in, in horror. And sometimes it's really obvious and sometimes it's really um, not. It's really very strange and allegorical and you, you're you invited to try and interpret what it might really be about, which is why um, I think there is such a vast industry of, of Gothic critics like me, because you're, you're presented with these texts and you just think, what the earth is that about? <laughs> is usually your question. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested that you brought up Get Out there, which obviously, as you say, is about anxieties around racism. Because also earlier you mentioned how the vampire, for example, in the Gothic was used to explore fears of foreigners. So there's quite a double-edged sword there that Gothic could be adapted and evolved to to kind of explore completely polarised themes. Yes, absolutely. The Gothic is both very, very kind of radical and subversive, but also very conservative. And in, in a way, someone like um, Stephen King is quite explicit about saying, actually, my horror is consolatory because there's a kind of resolution to uh, the threat or the menace that he invokes in so many of his books. Um, and, and he sees it as a conservative thing. Uh, whereas other people think, well, it's constantly subversive. You know, it's it's sexually transgressive. It, uh, it, it gives uh, all kinds of voice to um, the, the unnameable, the monstrous, uh, the voices to women. It's a very popular um, genre in, with women writers right from the 18th century onwards. Uh, it, it, it allows you to articulate anxieties at the edge of uh, of co colonialism and the empire. So Rudyard Kipling wrote lots of stories about haunting in India, which is clearly a kind of uh, way of navigating this the, this kind of limit of empire. So yeah, it can be really uh, radical, it can be really conservative. And perhaps one of the most important figures for that debate is H.P. Lovecraft. Hugely influential, hugely important, does lots and lots of nasty, squidgy, um, tentacular uh, horrors in his fictions. But he's also an absolutely pathological racist as well, and, and quite openly so in his letters. He was uh, someone who was a nativist, who believed that my immigration was, was completely destroying America. This was in the 1920s. America first was his view um, in, in many ways. Uh, and that's been a real difficulty for people who um, love his fiction, love his imagination. But how the hell do you deal with the fact that it might be actually coming from a very bad place, from this kind of racist view? So you get 
um, really recently fantastic African-American rewritings of Lovecraft as if they're kind of seizing the opportunity, taking uh, these monsters off uh, Lovecraft and transforming them in really very clever ways. So uh, someone like Victor Laval has written uh, The Ballad of Black Tom, which is a a rewriting of a Lovecraft story, or some people might have seen the TV series Lovecraft Country, which makes it an explicit sense that actually the whole of his horror imagination is coming from a white supremacy place. So those sorts of of subversive plays with that are all about conservative versus radical. It's always the question you ask about gothic fiction. Yeah, I'm I'm interested in that radical potential from a slightly older perspective. So when when the first gothic stories for example were emerging, um and as you say they did contain more potential to be sexually transgressive, transgressive in terms of gender norms. Was there a backlash to that? Were people worried about this new horrifying scary uh fiction? Yeah, the, the so so the debates we have now about um, say video nasties in the nineteen eighties or the or the bad influence of games, uh, you know, very violent games on children, it goes all the way back to the eighteenth century actually. And the, the, these uh, novels that appeared were called terror novels for a reason, which is that you know they were terrorizing their readers, and they were particularly concerned, many commentators, that it was women who were reading these books, and that their imaginations were being inflamed in all kinds of dangerous sorts of ways, which of course they were. That was the whole point of them. They they were very kind of, you know, titillating and exciting. Um, So you get people like uh, Jane Austen, who wrote Northanger Abbey, actually is a satire on all of that stuff. But then people like a very famous poet like Samuel Taylor Coleridge was completely outraged by um, a book by Matthew Lewis called The Monk, which came out in 1796. This was seen as the kind of height of licentious, naughty, um, sexually explicit uh, kind of work. Uh, And he was completely enraged by um, the fact that this was, you know, out in the world. And Anne Radcliffe actually stopped writing because she felt that she'd produced this kind of subversive version of it. Um, but, I mean, you know, someone like Coleridge was actually most enraged about the fact that he couldn't get as much money from his from his writing as Matthew Lewis. You know, it was like, ah, I really hate this stuff, but I wish I could write it. And that's quite a common sort of view. You know, someone like Henry James at the end of the 19th century. Oh, H.G. Wells, your writing is awful. I wish I could write like that and get as much money. So, you know, there's a, there's a kind of twi- twist around that. So it goes all the way back to the 18th century. People are always very concerned about the the dangerous, bad influence of gothic imagination on readers. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So I think the 70s is a is a kind of rupture in the in the in the period in England. There was um, a huge depression, uh, social breakdown, the rise of punk music, um, the fears of uh, of decline, uh, collapse of, uh, of of the long post-war boom. So you know, horror is really good for addressing the kind of miseries of that period. So- We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. 
Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Something that's really important to the Gothic imagination is uh, landscape and setting. What kind of settings have uh, been recurrent throughout the the, uh, history of Gothic? Yes, one of the things that I had to sort of try and manage in this book, um, you know, do the whole of the history of the Gothic across the world in about 55,000 words. Uh, how, how the hell do you do that? Well, I, I, in the end, I came up with this idea of thinking about a compass. So so we associate the Goths as, as a kind of tribal um, dark age race with the North. And actually, someone like Ruskin associates it with the North as well. But there's always a Southern Gothic. So Amer- in, in America, we associate the Gothic with Southern writers like William Faulkner. And it's all this kind of, you know, dreaded stuff about the Civil War and about slavery and plantations. And, you know, the, the, the kind of legacy of that is still being worked through. But there's also an Eastern Gothic. So this sense of, of, of the yellow peril so-called coming from Japan or China. Um, There's a colonial Gothic, which is about um, these strange monsters that you find on the edge of empire in India or in Africa particularly, or in the outback in Australia. Uh, And there's also a Western Gothic as well, that sense in which, you know, you can head west into the wilderness in America throughout the 19th century, but you're encountering kind of monstrous, unknown territory which is full of these strange uh, creatures and strange tribes, which actually you know that your very contact as a, uh, as a colonial settler are, are killing off, you know, because you're bringing disease with you. And, 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 uh, and there's that sort of pall of, of death that is driving behind this. So there are lots of landscapes, wild, um, sublime mountains and territories of the unknown, uh, but also landscapes that are um, that that kind of anxiety increasingly doesn't come from the total outside, you know, from 
from something disturbed in the in the Arctic or, or something from the wilds of America, but actually erupts inside your own house. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that sense of it coming home is a really key landscape, I think, that emerges over time. Uh, so, you know, Jekyll and Hyde. Hyde appears to be this monstrous figure who's coming from the back streets, but actually, sorry to ruin this, but actually it's Jekyll. Uh, and it, it's, it's actually a version of himself that he's let free uh, and it's erupting from within us. So that's a sense of the uncanniness of home uh, is very important to the modern Gothic as well. Yeah, the the haunted house, I think, is one of my own personal favourite gothic tropes in literature and and in films. How has that evolved or changed over time? Yeah, the haunted house is a, is a really good example, and I think it has changed quite quite radically over time. So in in the in the early phase of gothic novels, gothic writing, uh, it's nearly always associated with ancient buildings, with ruins or with, you know, uh, abandoned places. And nearly always the narrative is about, uh, you know, fleeting images of ghosts or haunting uh, some sort of intrusion into this space. And really the, the, the story is about investigating that and trying to unearth the true story. So it might be, you know, this was a place of atrocity, this was a place of a wrongful death that was never acknowledged. And once you tell the story of the ghost, the ghost is laid to rest. So we we still have, you know, narratives like that around, haunted house narratives that, that work like that. But what I found increasingly interesting was that there's a kind of an, an opposite of that that's emerged in the 20th century, which is that we are really haunted by places that have absolutely no history. Uh, so hotels, you know, places like um, uh, institutions like mental asylums and so on, that, that are actually these very modern and very idealistic institutions uh, that were designed to reform people that actually sort of went horribly wrong. We've decided, you know, these aren't great places. What, what a bad idea to, you know, stuff thousands of mentally ill people into one space. Uh, that didn't work. Uh, and, you know, they these themselves become haunted and then they're, they're much more about, you know, the, the uneasy sort of anonymous places, uh, corridors, um, tunnels in, in tube stations, hotels that have no history and yet seem to leak all of these these strange great ghosts and monsters in, in their basements or in their um, in their strange interstitial spaces. So yeah, there's there's lots of change across the history of, of um, the haunted house from this ancient thing to a very kind of modern unnerving place. Mm. Something we see as well throughout the history of the Gothic, whether it's Dracula or then in the modern age, films like Midsummer and The Witch, is this this idea of folk horror and a tension between urban and rural and fears about um, rural communities. Where do you think you can you can see that changing? Yeah, folk horror is a really good example of um, something that's kind of emerged very recently. So no one talked about folk horror until about 2010. Uh, and now it's become one of the key ways of thinking through contemporary kind of gothic. And we tend to bounce back into the 1970s to see uh, films like The Wicker Man as being the quintessential uh, folk horror story. So that's a story of a of a 
policeman who is sent to a remote Scottish island to investigate a disappearance. And it turns out that he's going to be uh, caught up in some ancient ritualistic uh, sacrifice. Um, So that's a kind of classic uh, folk horror thing. But actually, of course, the use of folklore um, goes all the way back to the beginning of the Gothic. So uh, werewolves are centuries old. This idea that there are some men who might turn into wolves, who might let their bestial nature overtake them periodically, that's that that's a really kind of crucial idea of folklore. And the vampire, again, is something that, that kind of emerges from a folklore position in peasant cultures at the edges of empire and then becomes a kind of fictional trope. So you can begin to see that actually uh, the use of folklore or what is called the folklore-esque, things that sound like folklore, but aren't urban myths and, and so on. Slenderman is a really good example of this, you know, uh, an internet myth actually uh, that, that that's emerged just through the through the leaking of this story in, in into the technology, and people begin to believe it, begin to act on on this kind of myth. So you can see folklore as being really central to the Gothic, and actually that roots it in a really ancient, centuries old set of traditions. So it's both a very very modern. Uh, genre, the Gothic, 18th century, the Enlightenment, uh, the recognisably modern world. But it's also all about what survives, what the legacy is of ancient mythology. We thought we'd got over this. We thought we'd superseded all of these superstitions. And here they come roaring back as soon as you hear a creak on the stair at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, We've spoken about Gothic monsters throughout the conversation, werewolves, vampires, zombies. But I wanted to ask you what your own personal favourite gothic monsters were. Maybe some that tell us something about the time in which they were created. Yeah, I think, well, everyone has their favourite monster, don't they? And I think um, I'm always quite intrigued recently by the much more formless um, monsters. So things that don't necessarily um, manifest um, in physical shape at all. And actually, I find that the most kind of unnerving. Um, so things like th- The Mist uh, film, which, you know, it's only at the very end that you begin to see these creatures uh, emerging from the mist. Before, it's a kind of, you know, vague um, cloud of, of menace. Uh, or there is a film called The Wind, uh, which is set on the very borders of the um, uh, of, of the western edge of the wilderness in America in the 19th century. And that that again, that's just gusts of wind for a long time. Uh, how frightening is that? Well, quite unnerving. Um, Algernon Blackwood wrote a great uh, novella called uh, The Willows, which is just simply the the willows, these, these willows shaking a lot at night. And it's just the sound which completely freaks out uh, the narrator who thinks that there is something from another world trying to get into our world. Uh, and all it is is a natural landscape, nothing, not, nothing kind of there. Uh, some people might have seen the Final Destination films, which is where, um, you know, death runs after people, but you never see this creature, you never see this thing. It just manipulates the world around you to create what seem to be accidents. So you get these very elaborate, very funny as well, um, deaths, which are kind of manipulated just by the environment around you. So there are so, so my favourite monsters are actually those you can't see, uh, which might not be a very satisfying answer, I suppose. Um, there's also something very interesting about tentacles, I think, and, and, and kind of tentacular creatures, uh, because I think they're so alien, they're so other, so they don't reflect us back. The zombie is just us, reflected back. They're just humans who've gone into a different phase. So are vampires, actually. Uh, Usually they're just kind of contaminated 
versions of us. But 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 octopus, they're completely alien. We don't understand them at all. You know, they have they have really weird kind of um, physiology that makes no sense to us. We don't understand it. Um, or eels. We don't know how they reproduce. That's crazy. So there's this kind of this other physiology, I think, which the Gothic uses and has used very recently. Again, someone like Lovecraft is very influential in that because, you know, he he actually had a phobia of shellfish. And you can tell that in, in his fiction because there's all of these kind of, you know, tentacles and uh, horrifying kind of protuberances um, that, that he just... Uh, create absolute revulsion in him. So I think that is, that, that's another kind of area which I think is very interesting. That point about Lovecraft bringing his own personal baggage, as it were, to his Gothic is interesting. Who do you think are some of the figures that have had the most influence on the development of Gothic? That's also a really, really good question. And I think, you know, there are there are versions of the Gothic which have, you know, obvious kind of progenitors. So uh, Anne Radcliffe in the 1790s wrote these kind of classic Gothic romances set in, usually in castles, uh, remote in Italy or in Spain or in France, uh, with a long, uh, elaborate, menacing threat to the heroine. You can see that everywhere still. Edgar Allan Poe is a really important figure, I think, as well. For this, the short story, uh, someone who was completely obsessed with premature burial and was, you know, kind of terrified of it. Uh, And you can see that coming up again and again in his kind of short stories. But it's the idea of concision and and of shortness, what he called a kind of, you know, a a harmonious kind of one sitting story was really important for him to to get the, the effect of horror that he wanted. So that's very important. And then someone like H.G. Wells fuses the old Gothic with modern uh, scientific romance, what we now call science fiction. So that fusion was very important as well. Lots of things come from that. And then I think no one can avoid uh, someone like Anne Rice or Stephen King in the 1970s. That's the kind of key moment of those become massive bestsellers, uh, the interview with the vampire, but also um, The Shining or Carrie. You know, those books by uh, Stephen King were really, really important for updating all of this old uh, material. So you mentioned the 1970s as a golden age of Gothic before. What do you see as uh, going on at that time that led that to happen? Was it the emergence, for example, of just some incredibly popular books from Stephen King that started off a trend? Or do you think that there was something going on in terms of historical background underneath all that? Yeah, it's it's always an intriguing kind of question to ask why the 1970s is such an important uh, moment. I think there are there are several answers always. I mean, one would be I think a, a kind of shift in uh, the thresholds of censorship. So there's a breakdown of um, a, 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 the Hollywood Code. Uh, in 1968, which had kind of really limited what you could represent. And suddenly that was just abandoned. The studios abandoned it. So you get incredibly explicit films emerging, uh, really, really kind of violent uh, imagery as well. And then someone like Stephen King, immediately a massive million bestseller, you know, straight away with his um, early work. Uh, And that seems to answer something about the kind of strife and uh, collapse of of authority in the 1960s, Um, a very violent decade, Vietnam is still going on, um, assassinations, and then also, you know, just straightforward social anxieties like the rise of feminism. And and, and that's really important, I think, for uh, both women using the Gothic to, to 
to try and address some of these anxieties. But also it can be very conservative, you know, and, the, and these films can become very punitive about women who express themselves sexually or independently. So all of that, you know, slasher horror films, say like um, Halloween, is it, it's it's really difficult material because um, it's, it's clearly punitive uh, towards women at times. Uh, and then again, you know, subsequently people have reworked it and revised it. Lots of women directors have come in and done really interesting things with that slasher genre. So I think the 70s is a is a kind of rupture in the in the in the period in England there was um a huge depression, uh social breakdown, the rise of punk music, um the fears of uh, of decline, uh collapse of uh of of the long post-war boom. So, you know, horror is really good for addressing the kind of miseries of that period. So I think that's why there's an eruption in England, slightly different question in America, and you can see it being copied and transformed and mutated across the world. I wanted to ask you what some of your own personal favourite gothic cultural moments are. Okay, so I always have to confess, as a you know, uh, an earnest professor of literature, that the only reason I am a professor of literature is because of Stephen King's *The Shining*, uh, which I read at a, a you know a very kind of um, impressionable age, and also the film which came out in 1979 uh, was w- w- was a huge kind of impression on me, not because it's. Uh, particularly gory or violent, just because of its its sort of sense of menace. But actually, you know, it's it's an amazing book. I would really encourage people to go back and read it because it's it, you know this hotel is a bearer of all of the uh, of the atrocious history uh, of America in really quite intriguing ways. That doesn't appear in very much in the film, but actually the the book is extraordinary. And it was just that kind of sense of how is this. How is this novelist doing this to me? You know, to to have this kind of effect on me, uh, it's really quite extraordinary. You can kind of you're both sort of outside it. This is preposterous. This is ridiculous. Because after all, it's uh, often collapses into comedy, doesn't it? Horror. That you reach for the sublime, but actually you collapse back into the ridiculous. And I think lots of horror fans have have a really strong sense of humour as well. You know, so they know that what they're watching is ridiculous or preposterous. You know, you should never go to the basement or go up the stairs, but you always do. Those sorts of things are, are, are really kind of crucial. So I think there are there are cultural moments that have really um, struck home, uh, and you see them because the first effect was so powerful. You see them endlessly repeated. But you know, one of the most famous, probably recently, was the um, Japanese film Ring, uh, which came out in the late 1990s. Now. The idea of, of uh, a long black-haired woman crawling out of a television towards you sounds ridiculous, but actually the first time you see it, it's the most extraordinary, terrifying thing, uh, which can um, shock even the most jaded of, you know, kind of horror film fans. And that, of course, has been, that that initial shock effect has been repeated over and over again to lessening effect every time, but it's that kind of inaugural moment that does that. And again, I think I'm someone who's edited um, Jekyll and Hyde, which I think has been hugely important for a psychological gothic. So the split self, uh, the idea that you don't know yourself is really kind of quite a powerful modern sort of idea, very kind of powerful. Or the yellow wallpaper, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's short story about a woman who is narrating without realising it her own kind of mental breakdown as she's sort of imprisoned uh, in this nursery by her entirely benign husband who's trying to help her. But nevertheless, it's a kind of gothic story happening at another level at the same time. It's it's a very wonderful, 
odd story, which I would really recommend people go and check out. So those are some. Finally, we've spoken a lot about um, how Gothic has been used to talk about anxieties of the age and it's changed to reflect those anxieties. So where do you see Gothic going next? Well, I think the great thing about the Gothic is that it's entirely unpredictable. So it's it's really very um, surprising, and and it's often written off. Genres often are, you know, you see lots of uh, essays about oh, this is the end of science fiction, or this is the end of the gothic, and of course something new comes along and totally transforms uh, the form. So it's very unpredictable where it goes. I think at the moment we've all become uh, as as kind of gothic readers very interested in a kind of transnational or global forms of, of the Gothic. So what happens to it when it's picked up in, uh, say, Thailand by filmmakers? What happens when it goes to Africa particularly? You know, that sense of, of how is it? How does it get rewritten? Such a rich tradition of, of, myth, of mythology and folklore that we aren't necessarily familiar with in the West that we're introduced to through these new kinds of fiction. So it has, in fact, gone very global now. Uh, and there are fresh voices coming through all the time, a huge subculture which supports this. I was just looking briefly uh, yesterday at a, uh, I googled women horror filmmakers and came up with a list of 249, I think, in the last 10 years. Uh, so that's a sense of, 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 of people, people who haven't necessarily had voices in, in the genre always or not always acknowledged coming through and really using it in interesting ways. So some of the most interesting work, you know, of, of, of late has been focused on that. Really interesting horror films about migrants or migration. Great film, little film called His House or a film about haunting called Atlantique, well, which is about migrants who drown and then sort of come back as, as these spectral um, figures. There's a really rich kind of engagement with our contemporary culture. That's what you always get from the Gothic. You always get that, um, I would say, kind of quite political, social engagement with the world around it. Rather than it being an escapist thing, which of course it can be, it can also be this very, very turned on and engaged uh, form of writing. That was Roger Luckhurst. His book, Gothic, An Illustrated History, is out now, published by Princeton. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.